Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator. I'll be talking with Dr. Ann Tickemeyer, Professor of Rural Sociology here at Penn State, as well as Lisa Davis, Director of Pennsylvania Office of Rural Health, as well as holding the role of Outreach Associate Professor of Health Policy Administration here at Penn State as well. With that, I could uh, give the floor to uh, both of you to kind of just give me a little bit about your backgrounds and your your roles here at Penn State, and then we can have a a spirited discussion here. This is Ann Tickemeyer. I came to Penn State nine years ago um, from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, where I'd been a professor for um, almost 14 years. And before that, I was at the University of Kentucky for 18 years. In all of those places, um, I have been, have done research on rural poverty, a, a very relevant topic for those places in Appalachia, uh, of various, uh, various parts of Appalachia, where poverty, rural poverty especially, is, is particularly relevant. And good morning, I'm Lisa Davis, and um, I'm the director of the Pennsylvania Office of Rural Health. We're one of 50 state offices of rural health in the country, so there's one like us in every state in the nation, and we're one of 10 state offices of rural health that are university-based. And the state office of, of rural health program is federally funded through a federal state partnership program to be the source of coordination, technical assistance, and networking between and among anyone within their individual state that is focused on increasing access to healthcare services in rural areas and increasing access to um, uh, increasing the health status of rural residents. And we work at the community, state, and federal levels. Wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you both for being here. So uh, I think we'd like to talk a little bit about the the kind of the unique demographics of Pennsylvania, the the rurality of it, um, how it has uh, remarkable diversity across um, across the the state geographically and uh, demographically, uh, particularly with with large population centers and then vast expanses of uh, of much more depopulated areas. Well, why don't I start off, and then Anne, I know, has a, has a wealth of information that she can add. Um, Pennsylvania is considered to be one of the most rural states in the nation. And actually, up until the 2000 census, we were considered to be the most rural state because we had the largest number uh, of people who lived in areas that were federally designated as rural. When the 2000 census uh, was launched, the U.S. Census Bureau had put in sort of a mini kind of designation called micropolitan. And so a number of the the individuals who lived in what were considered to be non-metropolitan areas were now in this micropolitan definition. And that is how we fell from being number one to either number six or number 10, depending upon who's counting. Of course, in my office, we can still consider us to be number one. (laughs) But um, Pennsylvania is, as you know, anchored by Pittsburgh in the southwestern part of the state and Philadelphia in the southeastern part of the state. But if you look at the state overall, 
48 of our 67 counties are considered to be rural, and those counties are predominantly in what is known as the rural J. So along the uh, northern border up against New York, down through the central part of the state, and then curling up underneath Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh is located. Those, those counties tend to have a great deal in common in terms of their geographic isolation, the challenges that they have in terms of access to economic development, to broadband services and other kinds of infrastructure, to transportation issues, and access to healthcare services. Although there is dis uh, disparity between those counties, overall those are some of the major characteristics. And those counties also tend to have a higher reliance on the public insurance programs of Medicare and Medicaid, and um, opportunity, fewer opportunities for educational advancement, especially above Interstate 80, uh, where there are no community colleges. Wow. And um, also challenges with being able to get from points A to, point, to points B because of the geography of, the, of those communities. So Anne, I'm sure you have a great deal to add to that. The, the definition of what is rural uh, varies a lot by the source. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Census both define what is rural. They uh, don't necessarily correspond. So what we classify as rural varies a lot depending upon how, um, what source you're using. The primary method is, is to select non-metropolitan counties, um, which often means uh, that that um, these, are, these are counties that are outside the metropolitan race. They're outside commuting, convenient commuting distance for work and um, recreation in large urban centers. That J that uh, Lisa was talking about is primarily made up of non-metro counties, although some of the counties are, are metro because of, their, because of the commuting patterns that people uh, take to, to jobs, but they still often are primarily rural in terms of population density, in terms of the basic economy, and especially in terms of the consequences of lack of services, lack of access to things like broadband, healthcare, um, other kinds of amenities that uh, people basically depend upon in, in this day and age. And I think one thing that's important to note is that when you look at most of the federal definitions, which there are about 40 different definitions at the sure. federal level that define what is urban and what is non-urban. What is interesting about most of those is that they really focus on the urban or metropolitan areas and anything that falls outside of that is considered to be either rural or non-metropolitan. There is one definition at the federal level called the rural urban commuting areas, otherwise known as RUCAs, that is supposed to be the most accurate uh, definition of rural, which looks at a scale of one to 10. Um, with subgroups within them. Mm -hmm. But even that definition is inaccurate. For instance, if you look at a county like Perry County, that is right next to Dauphin County, which is where our county seat is, which is where the state capital is, and where we have Hershey Medical Center, because of the way that individuals within Perry County commute for work, that is used as a proxy for commuting for other goods and services. And so Perry County, which just got its second stoplight a couple of years ago, and has a very small population, is actually considered to be urban. 
and therefore is ineligible in the world that I live in for a lot of the federal grants that would alleviate healthcare disparities. So there is really no perfect definition. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, and you can just look at Center County where we are right now, and uh, it's what it's considered metropolitan. It's one of the smallest metropolitan areas in the country, but it, nevertheless, it's metro. And we know uh, all you have to do is look at which direction traffic goes when people are coming into work or leaving work to see that it is the center of commuting for mm -hmm. the surrounding areas. Nevertheless, you don't have to go very far outside of, of State College to see just how rural this area is right. and uh, what many of the implications, political as well as, as service, um, sure. follow suit. That's interesting as well. I, mean, I think what folks sometimes think of, especially in, in State College and and around the university is the the bubble that is within this this area that yeah. it quickly quickly becomes a very different environment outside of state college area thinking of what the whole county has so i'd like to think talk a little bit about that and our perceptions versus versus what the a lot of the actual work is showing of communities that are uh, left behind right so we're thinking through um what is uh what's the difference between rural poverty, instance of rural poverty versus urban poverty? Or is this general narrative that is uh, that we're, we're picking up on the national scale of communities left behind, is that really borne out? It's really an interesting question, one that's being debated pretty re uh, uh, vigorously right now among um, uh, poverty researchers and policymakers. There is Good reason to think that rural poverty and urban poverty differ in some ways. Historically, um, the the populations, the demography of rural poverty was very different from from urban poverty. You know, being poor means economic deprivation, so everybody suffers in in similar ways. But if you look at at what the causes the causes of rural poverty versus the causes of urban poverty over time, there was quite a bit of difference for. Um, Populations were different. Um, uh, often rural poverty historically meant working poverty, people who had jobs but um, didn't make enough to get them out over uh, official poverty lines. Also, we know that the, the access to services, the consequences of, of being poor were quite different in rural areas and urban areas. Um, if you look at areas of persistent poverty, places that have been poor a long time, if you go back 50 years or even further um, and fast forward to the present, you still see the same pockets of rural poverty mm -hmm. that have been persistently poor over time. Nevertheless, those have shrunk. Um, they tend not to be quite as, as extensive across uh, rural counties as they previously were. And the populations increasingly look more similar. Mm -hmm. Um, so that um, there is less, uh, fewer rural poor are attached to the labor force than in the past. Um, fewer of the rural poor are in long-term stable marriages than in the past. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of a convergence between rural and urban poverty um, over, over time. And, and then, of course, there's the, the very crucial layering of an urban versus rural poverty framework to healthcare. Um, I think that in, in urban populations, there's often more rigorous um, or extensive opportunities for healthcare to some extent. Uh, and that, so I think maybe, if, Lisa, if you want to talk anything about the, the access to healthcare issue among rural communities and how that's really uh, leaving a lot of folks behind as well. 
I'd be glad to. Um, when we talk about access to healthcare, we talk about three components to that. It's access to the providers, it's access to the payment mechanisms, and it's access to transportation. So in Pennsylvania, we have 10 medical schools. And all of those medical schools are located in urban areas. We have one that is located in a smaller community, but it is still considered to be an urban area. And what we find is that healthcare very much is still centered around the primary care physician. And they play an enormous role in being in access to care. So when we look at the, the medical school graduates, we find that they are doing one of two things. They are either moving out of the state because our state has been challenged with our medical malpractice rates over the last 20 years or so, or they are staying in urban areas where they've trained, where they may have a spouse who's also a physician and, and is interested in staying in, in a more urban area. They also have access to all of the bells and whistles and all of the tools that they've grown up with and all of the electronic support services. So we, we look at a very special kind of person who wants to come out of an urban area and go back into a rural and go to a rural community to practice. We find actually that after all of these all of the studies have been done and all of the research has been conducted and all of the training programs have been put in place, that the biggest predictor of whether a physician will practice in a rural or medically underserved area is whether or not they came from a community like that. That is the biggest predictor. So when we look at practices all over the state, Two-thirds of all primary care physicians practice in the foremost populated counties in the state, three of which are located in Philadelphia or around that area, and the other is by Allegheny County, or actually in Allegheny County. So we're looking at a broad expanse of the state that, has, that lacks access to primary care providers. Many of those positions are fortunately filled with very talented advanced practice nurse practitioners, and with physician assistants, but we also see challenges with access to specialty services like oral health, and now with the issues around um, the opioid issue in Pennsylvania, we're finding that it's very challenging to attract psychiatrists or behavioral health providers. And then we need to look at the hospitals that are serving these communities. Across Pennsylvania, we have 197 uh, general acute care hospitals, and out of those, depending upon who's counting, it's either 48 to 60 small rural hospitals. And we're seeing an enormous affiliation happening across the state where these small independent hospitals are now affiliating with the larger health systems like UPMC or Geisinger or Penn Medicine or Pinnacle or Penn Highlands Healthcare because they really need that large infrastructure in order to be able to support what they need in terms of access to the providers, access to um, a good infrastructure like a facility, and to, um, let's say for instance, telestroke care or other kinds of um, services where you need a strong broadband. And then there is transportation, and I'm sure Anne has looked at this as well with poverty, is that being able to get across the state can be very challenging. 
I'm curious to know if, if these small rural hospitals are remaining open. Um, in many mm -hmm. places across rural America, healthcare facilities are closing. And we're lucky here in Pennsylvania, we have had very few rural hospital closures. Mm -hmm. We have a couple of hospitals that are really on the edge financially, mm -hmm. but they have not yet closed. So that's a great question. And is, is that particularly attributable to state policies or federal support systems that have kept some of these rural hospitals uh, afloat? It's, yes, it, I would say that that's the case. One of the um, real benefits to the small rural hospitals was the passage of Medicaid expansion mm -hmm. under the current um, administration. Because what that meant was that the hospitals were seeing fewer cases of uncompensated care, sure. and they were also getting compensated for their Medicaid expenses at the state level. Um, and I wonder, um, and if there's any perspective on, on what your typical data sources have been in your research, um, if there's any interesting angles on that front. A lot of the data on, on rural poverty and poverty in general comes from federal sources. Um, there are many of them, but, but um, the current population um, surveys and, and um, the census, the American Community Survey, all of those are important sources. Mm -hmm of information, and there are a zillion other uh, statistics sure, available, sure. as well as household surveys that are conducted usually with, with uh, public support, but nevertheless done by university faculty across the country. However, there are also huge data needs, especially for rural um, poverty. Um, I, waiting to, to come in, I was just um, looking at uh, uh, the draft of a report by the um, by RUPRI, the Rural Policy Research Institute, that held a big conference uh, a year ago, actually a little bit longer, a year ago last spring, on a rural poverty research agenda. And one of the things that were identified and that we're starting to put together in a report is what are the data needs mm -hmm. that, that uh, and what kind of research, what kinds of policy research is necessary in order to address these issues. How to be more systematic? How to how to get people to actually do this research? Sure. Right now, rural is is a little bit hot because of the of current politics, because mm -hmm. of the last election. So there's a lot more interest in in rural everything, including rural poverty. But for most of the last, I don't know, fifty years or so, rural tends to get set aside, sure, sure. tends to get ignored, it's flyover. A lot of people will talk about the so-called hollowing out of rural America, which has been basically ignored by mm -hmm. um, by policymakers, researchers, lots of people. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit also about the data. I think um, Anne mentioned some, some terrific sources. And um, in, in um, the work that rural advocates do, we are looking very much at the census data. And so any conversations about how the census process might change or be modified is really important. And we want to make sure that everyone is counted, regardless of your status here in the United States. What's important is that the correct data are collected mm -hmm. so that those who are actually working in policy can make decisions based on very accurate data, not on who you hope will be included in the, in the survey. 
And um, we also use a lot of what are called the BRFIS data, the behavioral risk factor surveillance data that come out because those are really important, um, even though it's, it's a small population, because that has been such a consistent data source for, for several decades, it becomes really important to be able to look at trends. One thing that my office and rural advocates really need to do with all the data that are out there is that we're working with healthcare providers. So it might be a hospital CEO, or it might be someone working in a community-based community action center. So they don't really have the time nor the skill to be able to sift through all of the data. So we've developed a population health database where we work with a group out of California to pull in all of the data and to do some very nice, very easy to understand presentations of the data mm. so that the healthcare facilities and healthcare providers can make decisions based on those data, but can also drill down to find if they need more information about where the data have come from. Because data can be really confusing. Mm -hmm. And being able to tap into the appropriate data, I think, is, is really important, especially for those who are actually working in the communities. That's great. That's a great resource for, for all those folks on the front line. The, the other piece that I think is important is that in the healthcare world, we're really moving from a volume-based system to a value-based system so that we're looking at quality versus quantity. Mm -hmm. And there's something called the triple aim of healthcare, which is looking at cost, quality, and outcome as a way to move toward this new vision of healthcare, which is focused on population health mm -hmm. rather than individual health. I tend to think of population health as really being able to address the health of a population, whether that's a community or a group who have been diagnosed with, with diabetes or a population group, but really looking at a population one person at a time. But data are absolutely critical to being able to assess population health and moving into this value-based system. That's really interesting, um, especially as we know that there, have, there has been a decline in um, life expectancy recently, a variety of, of health issues that um, are really critical for, for this country that, you know, we, we, we should be embarrassed that mm -hmm. our life expectancy values, our, our other, other kinds of, of indicators of health have not kept up with a lot of the rest of the, uh, of, of the developed world. So. That's right. Considering the remarkable investments as well, that yeah. really have a pretty low return. Yeah. And much of that um, decline in the life expectancy can be attributed to what's really ravaging the state, as you mentioned, um, the, the opioid epidemic. Uh, has has really been has really decimated a lot of rural communities, um, as well as as medium to urban urban communities as well. So, uh, it's interesting about how that uh, is perhaps motivating a lot of these conversations because of the epidemic level that's going on. You know, it's the, it, I think it's really important to talk about the the opioid epidemic, but it's not totally new. I mean, before sure. opioids, there was the meth. Mm -hmm. issue. There was a variety of, of really serious health issues and, and, and drug use issues that certainly afflicted rural areas that didn't get as much attention. So I, I'm sure you know much more about this, Lisa, than I do. But, but I, I think, you know, we're, 
it's another one of those things where we suddenly wake up surprised that it exists when we should have seen it coming because there were so many um, Correct. background that's right issues. well that's another another reason to uh, unfortunately be you know our system could be admonished for missing these communities before how, how something was able to be overlooked uh, before it gets to catastrophic levels well and Kentucky is a really great example of that was that 10 or 12 years ago, Anne, that Hazard Kentucky was considered to be this uh, nucleus for, for drug activity and for fatalities due to overdoses? But it didn't really catch on mm -hmm. until we started seeing opioid deaths move out of what you would consider to be sort of the traditional group of people who were, who were experiencing that, which are, for the most part, low income, isolated individuals, whether they're rural or urban, mm -hmm. but suddenly the opioid or, or addiction started to affect middle-class America. Mm -hmm. And that's when people stood up and started to take notice. That's right. I'd love to talk more about how we can um, kind of brainstorm intersections between the policy space and academics uh, to really kind of move forward uh, these, these issue areas that are, are important to us. Well, a couple of things I wanted to say. One is, um, and I'm sure Anne's experienced this a great deal, we never think about rural as just its own space. So rural and urban and suburban, although no one sort of talks about suburban, but rural and urban are very much interconnected, mm -hmm. very much so. So it's not one against the other, or one is better than the other. So that I think is, has been really important for us in being able to work across the state with organizations, institutions um, across the entire state, whether it's rural or urban. But what is impacting poverty and what is impacting rural Pennsylvania is essentially everything. So you're talking about economic development, education, healthcare, infrastructure. So there are so many ways in which the, the worlds in which we live intersect each other mm -hmm. in just about everything. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about access to healthcare, access to affordable and healthy foods, access to sustainable living situations, it's everything. Would you agree? Absolutely. And it's interesting that you mentioned suburban um, areas too, because one of the things that has recently been realized is that there's been an increase in poverty in suburban locations. We don't know exactly why. We think part of it may be just a reclassification of boundaries. Mm -hmm. So places that previously had been rural <laughs> now are the exurbs yeah. and suburbs of, of urban areas. Mm -hmm. But we also think that there has been population movement in and out. And, and of course, the Great Recession impacted every place. Um, and many places haven't recovered yet. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, it's all interconnected. It's, it's, it's a mistake to see these as, yeah. as separate issues. And we work a lot with those who are in Anne's department and in Anne's college. Actually, we used to be in Anne's department yeah. many, many years ago and see that connection to that academic community as absolutely vital to the work that we do in terms of being able to talk about best practices, being able to know um, who we can call on if we need data or information. And we, we also do a lot of work with the um, Agricultural Safety and Health Program, 
that are in the College of Ag Sciences and work very closely with them on trying to do a lot of outreach and education to ag producers on not only safe farming practices, but also helping them access the healthcare system, seeing who might be eligible to enroll in healthcare and health insurance programs. So it's, it's very broad. And it works the other way around. Researchers um, need the people who have the on-the-ground connections mm -hmm. and know how outreach works in order to conduct the research. So it's, it's always a two-way street. I, I am interested in how we can further, you know, really leverage data, administrative data, a variety of different sources across the, the government, both uh, state, commonwealth, and uh, federal sources for really fine-tuning our approach going forward. Well, you know, unfortunately for uh, rural areas, especially the American Community Service Survey, <laughs> yeah. service, um, for census data in general, has substituted for the, the old long-form um, individual detailed mm -hmm. census questionnaires. And they're on a five-year cycle. Mm -hmm. So the smallest places have to wait five years before they, the data is, is available. And that kind of lag, I mean, it's in, uh, in this day and age, that yeah. kind of lag is not really very realistic in terms right. of understanding and as what's a result, happening. Now, you do have other sources of data. So um, uh, the, the, the current population surveys are mm. you know, much more common. Of course, one thing that's, that's coming up quickly is uh, the so-called big data sources. So I have a colleague, for example, who is very much involved in analyzing Twitter data. And it's in, you know, at this point, it's, 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 it's sort of limited by your imagination and how to use it. Now, it may uh, not be as representative for rural areas because of broadband issues. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, most of that is, is, is accessed by cell, cell data. So it's a little more. It, it's not quite as bad as, as not having really good broadband access. Uh, people are just really starting to, to make use of, of those sources. And I like to plug what I call little data <laughs> because I think increasingly we respect smaller scale qualitative um, studies. It used to be that those were seen as problematic, not as rep certainly not as representative. Um, and therefore in, in the social sciences and in my discipline of sociology, sometimes not as um, highly respected, but I think it's increasingly recognized that you need both qualitative data, small-scale studies that go into great depth, as well as large-scale quantitative studies to really understand the process and meaning of, of different kinds of situations. So if you want to understand what poverty means to people, how they experience it, how they cope with it, some of those small-scale qualitative studies are really important. And for in the world that I live in, we think a lot about payer data. So primarily Medicare and Medicaid payer data. And being able to get access to those data pretty quickly are very important because policies change so quickly or a state may move in and, in and out of uh, Medicaid expansion. Um, so being able to have access to those data are really important for us. And we find that a lot of the data that comes that, that come out for some of the, the big national programs that we work in, they, you know, because they lag by 24 months, mm -hmm. 
it's interesting, but not necessarily always useful that we need to look much more at state data rather than federal data. Mm -hmm. The other challenge that we've had, and it's less so now, but when you looked at rural communities, if for instance you were uh, looking at numbers of reported AIDS cases, it was very challenging. Um, there were several counties in the state where they couldn't report because they had so few cases that you could essentially identify who that person was. Uh, so it, it was, uh, they didn't want to break confidentiality. Sure, so sure. now that, that has changed over time, mm -hmm. but that was limiting as well. I think we increasingly have the means to report and, make, and give access to data as it's happening. I know there are now, there's now something called a nowcast and for economic data, it's not a forecast, mm -hmm. it's, it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any reason why we couldn't have similar kinds of, of data availability for health issues, for poverty yeah. issues, for whatever. Uh, we just need the will, the economic resources to make this happen. That I find uh, is, is a crucial point. And Lisa, you made note of it. Um, in referencing the time lag, that's often uh, problematic. I think one thing that uh, really can support the intersection of academic work and, and policy work is making those runways as short as possible mm -hmm. for academic work. Often the timelines are just a little different. The policy community is, is in need of something immediately, <laughs> yesterday, and often the timeline in academic circles is, is a little longer, especially for something that goes through peer review and is publishable and has an extensive uh, review process. There's so working on uh, responsiveness, I think, is a, is a important angle. I think maybe we've covered quite a, a number of topics. Uh, we've discussed spatial inequality, the, the rurality of Pennsylvania, and the changing demographics and population movements. Discussed uh, major rural health issues that are affecting people daily, um, and trying to prepare ourselves for the next epidemic. I want to just give my, my wonderful guest here an opportunity for any closing statements, bring up any further topics uh, in this area that you'd like to, to talk about. I guess I'd like to say that rural poverty has been a, a serious issue for this country for many, many years, for decades. And the current interest is wonderful, but we shouldn't let it be something that disappears again. Rural poverty as well as poverty in general are, are issues that we need to address in a serious way without regard to what's currently popular or interesting or in vogue. And, and I would say that rural America is absolutely critical to all of America. So while 20% of the population lives um, in rural areas, 90% of the United States landmass is, is outside of urbanized areas. And all the food that's grown is grown in rural communities, and they tend to be the backbone and the anchor of the United States. So it's important to think about rural communities as places that deserve respect and attention. That's excellent. That's great. That's <laughs> a, very, a very good point, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, lovely. I think we, with that, we can bring this episode to a close. I want to uh, thank my lovely guests here, uh, Lisa Davis, the Director of the Pennsylvania Office of Rural Health, as well as the Outreach Associate Professor of Health Policy 
and administration here at Penn State. And uh, also Dr. Ann Tickemeyer, Professor of Rural Sociology here at Penn State. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.